Father, thank you so much for the power that is in the name of Jesus Christ. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, what an awesome privilege it is that you have called us to be in unity with you and have fellowship with you and to be reconciled with you and to walk with you and to have you uh, someone that we can approach in prayer and worship. That, Father, you meet our every needs. Uh, We've we've heard praise reports tonight of how you have come through really in, in just so specific, powerful, awesome ways. And so tonight, God, we just say thank you. Thank you that you would deign to to come down and become as one of us, that we would be able to uh, have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ and all that he has done. Thank you that he is both fully God and fully man. Tonight, Lord, as we get into the subject even deeper, would you give us wisdom by your spirit? Would your spirit be our teacher and our counselor? And would you show us, Lord, how to take this truth and not just store it in our mind, but in our hearts and live it out? Father, help it to be so applicable. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, some years back, actually back in the 90s, I met a particular couple, and they were in our homeschool co-op. We began to get to know them better. My wife found out that uh, she did not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, she wasn't Jehovah's Witness. Interesting. Okay. And she was of a group called the Way International. She had left that group, however... Uh, but this, the new church still, she says, our pastor does not believe that Jesus is God. And I said, really? And my wife kind of sat down, shared some things with her. Um, later, I had a chance to meet her pastor and express some concern uh, because he was a part of a fellowship of other pastors in the Sanford area. And as I began to uh, share with the leader at the time, I I just expressed some concerns. And so he spoke with the gentleman. He said, Mike, you know, he believes that Jesus is divine. We talked about that that last week, didn't we? And how people can use that word and and not use it accurately. Um, That he believed in, um, I think he said he believed in the Trinity, now, if you're not aware, the word Trinity originally was first used in the second century to simply mean a united purpose, not a united essence. Okay, And, and that's significant when we're talking about the deity of Christ. So fast forward a couple of years, uh, this particular gentleman is uh, going to be stepping into a leadership role uh, in, the, in the city. And I call him, I just say, you know what, help me right now if you would. And I would love to be able to sit down with you over lunch. And several years ago, I don't know if you remember a discussion we had over the phone. I would love to be able to just put that to rest. Um, I understand what your background is, and you have left a cult, and I would love to be able to talk with you and just to be able to put my heart at ease, and just with regard to who Jesus is and, and such. And so we set it up uh, for a couple of days. He was going away, and then he was going to come back, and then we were going to grab lunch. Well... He calls me later that day, and he is absolutely furious. And he says, you know what? I, we're not going to meet, and here's why. Because I, you're, gonna, you're a Pharisee, and you just want to pigeonhole my theology, and I'm going to take about 15 to 20 minutes and consolidate it, because I'm, I, I, I'm a very patient person when it comes to this. 
but about halfway through or towards the end, I, I just lost it. And, and I just said, you know what? The only Pharisee that is here is you because you're trying to tell me something that I never said or did. And the scripture is clear that Jesus is God. And in the course of the conversation, he said the deity of Jesus Christ is as inconsequential as transubstantiation. And, and I said, number one, I'm not sure transubstantiation is inconsequential. I, I thought that. I didn't say that. But I understood where he was going with this, how exactly we practice the Lord's Supper and such. And, and I, I just I, I called him out and I said, you know what? We need to realize that, the, this, that who Jesus is is central to the gospel. And tonight, I, I want and by the way, he, he, I, I don't want to continue on with that uh, story any more than to say this. He did step into that role, but as I understand later in the year, he stepped back, and I, I'm glad that he did. Um, but the, the leadership did what they could in trying to have people sign a covenant, and it's just really easy. Arius was willing to say, you know what, if you change the words of this Nicene Creed, or rather, if, if you allow us to interpret the words of the Nicene Creed differently than the way you're explaining them, we can sign this. And, and they said no. And in essence, if you start redefining words, words mean nothing. This creed means nothing if you want to redefine the words. And so, th- th- yeah, that Eris decided he wasn't going to sign it and same with a few others. But as, as we move into this teaching more about the deity of Jesus Christ, and I want us to conclude with the humanity of Jesus Christ, let's realize that there are a lot of people who truly do not understand how Jesus can be God and yet be man. And if we err in saying that he is not God, we run into those six different things that we looked at. It it absolutely destroys the atonement. Uh, We cannot worship him and we are called to worship him. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. We looked at that name, Lord, Adonai and Hakurios in the New Testament. And Jesus, the the early church readily recognized that Jesus is God. To deny this, to deny either his humanity, which is what John focused on, or his deity, John says that you have the spirit of the Antichrist. And so this, this is something that's very significant. And as we now kind of step into somewhat of a polemic here, meaning uh, argumentation, I want us to look at objectives. My, my purpose tonight is not to argue, okay, except for the deity of Jesus Christ. But I need us to look at some of these objections that you're going to come across from your Jehovah's Witness friends or liberal friends, if you go to Stetson University, um, other religions, Muslim, um, and, and so... We need to understand where they're coming from so that we can address that and we can point them to the scriptures and bring some clarity to their understanding. I didn't say clarity to the scriptures. The scriptures are already clear. It's our lack of understanding. That's what needs clarity. And so tonight, I want us to look at several of these objections. I want to be careful. My time is limited. And truly, just these objections, and I have listed half a dozen here or five, whatever it is, And we could spend the entire evening looking at these. 
And so I've got to resist the temptation to do that. If I get too deep into them, uh, pray that the Holy Spirit will show me and I'll just immediately move on quickly. Because we do have a lot of ground to cover. And I want to emphasize and conclude with the deity, or excuse me, the humanity of Jesus Christ. Now, the only reason why this presentation is giving more lopsided to the deity of Christ than the humanity of Christ is simply because it's the deity of Jesus Christ that in our day is, that is so... Uh, um, ferociously attacked not his humanity everybody accepts his humanity though there's a very anyway just about every single person accepts his humanity but we're going to need to look at about seven or eight reasons why Jesus had to be man and and it's very very important that we understand this so I'm by, by no means trying to treat the humanity of Christ as a footnote but let's look at some of these objections. The first one is probably the strongest that your Jehovah's Witness, your Jehovah's Witness friend will present to you. And that's going to be found in John 10. Now, this is not an easy passage to understand for me or for a Jehovah's Witness friend or anybody, scholar or non-scholar. This is not an easy passage to understand. And so I'm going to read several of these verses to you. Um, actually from 31 to 39. So follow with me if you would. I'm reading from the NIV. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you how many great miracles, I, uh, excuse me, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, it is, excuse me, is it not written in your law? I have said, you are gods. Hmm? I don't know. Did, it, did anybody do research and find out where that passage is from? Okay. Psalm 82. I have said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world. Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do what my father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he, gra- but he escaped their grasp. Now, if you were to go to Psalm 82, you will find that phrase. Now, again, I'm needing to cut to the chase with some of this, so we're not going to go to Psalm 2, uh, Psalm 82. That's, it's the, most, the first six verses are the most pertinent, but these are most probably rulers, uh, judges, that God has set in because God has set in all authority, all right, and he has instituted these authorities, and he calls them Elohim, which is, in the, the Hebrew, gods. Meaning that they are representatives of God. Not meaning that they are literally God in essence, or deity, or part of the Godhead. Or that there are many, many gods, and they just happen to be one. Now, what our Jehovah's Witness friends then will say, see, Jesus is appealing to a passage in the Old Testament, 
and he is simply equating himself to one of these leaders. <coughs> and first of all, that is not what Jesus is doing. He is not equating them. He is actually saying that he's above them. And he is focusing on this concept that Jesus has been sent by the Father. Now, before I go any further, I need you to put on your thinking caps. And if you were Jesus, and you were not God, how would you answer the Jews' accusation? You, a mere man, claim to be God. How would you answer their accusation? I didn't say that. Okay, I didn't say that? <coughs> well, wouldn't you just cut right to the chase and say, Guys, I am not saying I am God. Right. End of discussion. So why doesn't Jesus do that? And ask your Jehovah's Witness friends, why doesn't Jesus just make it clear? Guys, I am not saying that I'm God. John 5, he does the same thing. We looked at that passage last week. Because they were making, he was making himself equal with God. He could have just said, guys, I am not making myself equal with God. Now we looked at how Jesus is equal with God in all of his essence and attributes. He is not equal with the Father with respect to authority. Because there is an authority structure in the Godhead. That doesn't make him inferior any less than my wife is inferior to me. In many ways, my wife is superior. It's just an authority in the home. She's not because God has set me as the leader in the home and her as my helpmate, which means she has the right to speak into situations and I need to listen. I shoot myself in the foot if I don't. So this concept of authority structure does not in any way make Jesus not God. Now, if Jesus were God, hypothetically, of course he is, but this is, we're thinking argument here. If Jesus were God, and ask your Jehovah's Witness friends, how would he respond to this question? If he were to say, bingo, you guys finally got it, he wouldn't be able to put a period on that sentence before he'd get hit with the first stone. Do you understand the dilemma that Jesus is in? He's only in John 10, and the Passover doesn't come until John 12 and 13, and he doesn't die on the cross until 19. So what is he going to do? Seriously, this, from a human perspective, this is a dilemma that Jesus needs to handle very tactfully. So how does Jesus, if he, if he weren't God, how would he have responded? He would have categorically said, you guys got it all wrong. I'm not saying I am God. But he doesn't do that. And if he were God, and he is, then how can he then address this in a way that's tactful and kind of many times as Jesus does, kind of puts the ball in their court to think about. All right? Many times Jesus comes back with a question that they ask with his own question because he wants them to think. He's not seeking after them. He wants them to seek after him. And so the best way to do that is to make them ask questions. That's what he did with Nicodemus. That's what he did with the, uh, the woman at the well, Samaritan woman at the well. That's what he did with the Pharisees many, many times. He wants them to seek him. So this is what he is trying to do, and he is trying to get them to and, and he says, look at my mirror. If I do the very things that my father does, hello, 
But he doesn't come out and say, yes, you got it, I'm God. Because he can't. Do you understand why he can't? Do you understand why he can't? Okay. Um, so he chooses this route. And honestly, it's a very interesting route that he goes. But he basically says, you know what, guys, by the way. And he tries to put the ball in their court. He says, in Psalm 82, it says they are gods. And that he does so because they are agents. They are ambassadors. They are sent from God to execute ruling and judgment on the earth. But the Father has sent me, so how much more would I not be like this? The Jehovah's Witnesses want to jump on this, that Jesus is trying to say that he is a God. Back to John 1.1. 1, 1. Jesus is here proving, because I tell you what, if you're talking to a Jehovah's Witness friend of yours, they will jump from John 1.1 1, 1 to John 10 to prove their point. But can I ask you, how confusing would that be to them? Why would he even, if, if Jesus is a God, then, all, then he is saying that all of these other, others are gods too. For Jesus to be a God, and he is certainly not putting himself on the same level as these representatives. He's trying to say, if you call them gods, how much more am I? Can I ask you this? What is a God? That, that's my question. What is a God? What does that mean? Very good. Thank you. Something you worship that you give devotion to above God himself. And if it's God, then, okay, he's God and you worship him and he has your strict devotion. But if it's a God, then he is robbing you or he's robbing God of his rightful worship. That is the concept of a God in both the Old and New Testament. If Jesus is saying he is a God, then that means he is a false God because there's only one true God, and that's it. You know, for Satan to be called the God of this age does not mean he is of the essence of God, but he is a God that is stealing the rightful worship that belongs to the Father. And he is seeking that. Idols are called gods, because they rob God, his rightful glory and worship, and we give it to these idols. Is that what we're doing with Jesus? Is Jesus robbing the Father of our worship? Scott? If, if he's saying if he is merely a God, does that not contradict the first commandment? Where you should worship no God, okay. God but me. I would say yes, and that's my point here. Because you can't have like levels of godness. If you're either God or you're a substitute God. That is the, those are the only two categories. The reason why Jesus is pointing, that, calling them gods is because in essence that's a euphemism, if I could use it this way. It's a euphemism for them being representatives of God. And he's simply saying, well, by the way guys, I mean, if they're representatives of God, how much more am I? And that's all that he is trying to say. He's not trying to say anything more or anything less. He is not here claiming deity, but he certainly is not denying their accusation. And he could very easily have done that, but he didn't. So, yes, Scott, 
it would be breaking the first commandment even for Jesus to be called a God. If you worship a God, and we do see them worshiping a God, and the only reason why God is applied to anyone other than our creator is because we're worshiping him. It, 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 because he has that first pl- that thing or that being has first place in our life. That's why they are a God. If we're worshiping an idol, they are a God. So you can't have Jesus as a God and you don't worship him. That is what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. That, it, that, that doesn't line up with scripture in any way. Okay? Gods are worshiped by definition. All right? Jesus is either the true God or he is a false God. And if you say that he is simply a God, you are saying he is a false God. All right? Any questions on John 10? Again, we could go much more in depth, but it, I, I, I want to make sure that you understand what we have covered so far. All right? I, I was a little lost, but like, I guess I could talk to you more about it. Well, just if you're lost, some other can be too. Well, because what I'm saying is that we went, we just pretty much essentially capitulated that Jesus is saying that he uses this essentially like he's pretty much trying to bring the Pharisees conclusion to the logical fallacy saying like if even they were called God it's like why would you want to show me that I'm being called a God and I'm actually true God though he doesn't actually say but we're saying that if Jesus wasn't a God as in Psalm 82 says gods they mm-hmm. should have been worshipped but is that what Psalm 82 said if they should have been worshipped or is it is Jesus not using that to say, like, they were called gods and it was okay to call them gods? Okay. Is the, the Jehovah's Witnesses do not place Jesus on the same level as these rulers, okay? As, just as representatives of God, okay? Um, and so, but Jesus is using that phrase, they, they were called gods, to or, or the psalmist was to say that they were representatives of God, okay? And Jesus was at least a representative of God. All right. So, good question. So, the, the, so essentially, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to put this. So, essentially, what we were going down is essentially we were pretty much adopting a Jehovah's Witness view how they would view it and how that's illogical. Uh, At some part of the argument, yes, I was. Yes. Because I was wondering, because I I thought Jesus was trying to use it in a way like, it's okay that they were called God, so why are you trying to show me? Okay, yes. What Jesus is trying to do is he is trying to evade a direct answer to their question. Because if Jesus is God, how does he answer them? And so he needs to try and stir up the pot a little bit and yet not come out and say, yes, you guys, you're right, I am God. Because they would stone him immediately. And so how does he answer it? He answered it in a very tactful way. And even so, they realize that he is not completely off the hook. And so they still want to stone him. Do you see? Even he he wasn't saying... I'm not God. All right? So, Jesus... Anyways, 
a difficult passage to understand, but Jesus is not trying in any way to deny his deity. He's not. Okay? All right. Uh, Colossians 1, 15 and 16. Yes, it is. And in number two, Jesus, excuse me, Paul is using a term, firstborn, and firstborn, taken literally, means what? Firstborn. It means you're born first. That means there's a secondborn, a thirdborn, and... So if we're going to take this literally, then it would mean that Jesus was born directly from God. So the father gave birth to a son. Do you see the problem that we're going to have with this? Just right off the bat, if we're going to talk about Jesus being born of the father and we're going to take this literally, we're going to immediately run into a problem because the father did not literally give birth to his son because that's, in our human experience, that would be impossible. All right? So he could not literally have been born first. So what they, Jehovah's Witnesses and others that would deny the deity of Christ would say is that Jesus was not necessarily born, but this is a born is a euphemism for created. And so that he was the first of God's creation. And so this the, in taking this literally, they throw back on us, see, you guys have a dilemma here. Because Jesus, the Bible says, was born first over all creation. Okay? And then how do we respond to that? Wow, okay, man, if he was, if God created everything, but Jesus was the first, doesn't that make Jesus God's first creation? There's another way that this term firstborn is used, and if you were to look at Psalm 89.27, you can do that, turn to Psalm 89.27, He says, I will also appoint him my firstborn, referring to, um, to David, my servant. I will also appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. So wait a second. Was Jesus his firstborn or was David his firstborn? I mean, he's talking about David here and he's saying David was his firstborn. Firstborn meaning what? He tells us what firstborn means by saying the next line, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. Firstborn is used here not to be taken literally, but as a title. A title. The firstborn in any family, literal firstborn, would have firstborn rights. Having firstborn rights, he received a double portion of the inheritance because he was going to have to take care of mom and dad when they were old. That inheritance would be given to them well before mom and dad were old, 
I'm not exactly sure how old they would be, but way before mom and dad are old and receiving this inheritance then, they had to, they realized that I got to take care of mom and dad. So they needed a double portion of this. Now, Ephraim and Manasseh were two sons adopted by Israel, Jacob, and from Joseph. They were Joseph's two sons. Ephraim was, Manasseh was the oldest. He was the firstborn, and Ephraim was the secondborn. When Joseph takes them before Israel, his father, to bless them and to adopt them as, as Jewish, as Israelites, and Ephraim and Manasseh, not Joseph, were names of tribes, okay? When Jacob, or Israel, extended his hands, he crossed them because he had put, he had put Manasseh on his right, so he expected, Joseph ex- expected his father to reach out his hands like this with his right hand on the oldest and bless him with the firstborn blessing. But Jacob did this, and he switched his hand, and he called Ephraim the firstborn. He didn't do it because he was blind. Joseph tried to correct him, and he said, no, the firstborn blessing goes to Ephraim. But Ephraim wasn't the one born first. Okay, so we need to realize that firstborns can be used as a title. Here's how we know for sure that it's used as a title. Can someone read verse 15 and then the beginning of 16 for us? Someone do that. Yes, please. Colossians 1. Colossians 1. Anybody? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth. Okay, that, that, that's good right there. Thank you. For by him all things were created. This, is, this word for is not the word... Um, How can I, I, the word is not coming to me. This word for means because. I want you to think now, cause and effect, all right? As we look, I want you to see this idea that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, firstborn of all creation. I'm going to call this A. Okay? Because I'm going to put an argument together here. A cause and effect argument. Um, Created all things. This is B. Here is my question. With the word for or because, maybe put it in another sentence. I hit John... Because he did something bad. Which caused which? Did the first part of my sentence cause the second part, or the second part caused the first part? Okay. So this word that we're inserting here, for or gar, show me the cause and effect relationship. Does A cause B, or does B cause A? B causes A. That is absolutely crucial. This is what Paul is saying. Because he created all things, he is the firstborn of all creation. Jehovah's Witnesses, however, read it this way. 
because he's the firstborn over all creation, he created all things. That is their theology. Because he was the first created, he was given the privilege to create all things. Okay? Let me say that again. Because this is Jehovah's Witness theology, they, and, and I'm not twisting it in any way, because Jesus was born first, because he was created first of all things, the Father gave him the privilege to create all things. That is not what Paul is saying here. He is saying, because Jesus created all things, he was given the title of firstborn over all creation. Not firstborn as if he's part of that creation, but firstborn as if he is over that creation, as it's, he's, he is supreme. And by the way, supremacy is a word that's used in that paragraph. He was given that honor, that title, that sense of supremacy. Be, again, because he created all things, the Father gave him that title, firstborn over all creation. All right? That is the exact opposite of what your Jehovah's Witness friends will tell you they believe. Juliana? Did you say what the Greek word was for four? It's, it's a very, very common Greek word, gar, G-A-R. And can it ever be translated for as in, I'm giving this for you, or this is for you, instead of, I'm giving this because of you? Like that uh, no. Before? So it's always because. Right. Right, because this, this implies causality. Yes. Right, I just wanted to make sure like, it couldn't be translated. Right. They, they, would, they, use it, uh, they actually use an ending, a, a declined ending for what you're saying. No, I'm not going to get into oh, that. Okay. Just like they would in Latin. So it's just like G-R. Of, t- for, to, of, uh, from. Anyway, oh. I, I don't want to get into to that, but uh, this, is a, this is a word that implies causality. It's G-A-R. Inconsequential. The idea is this word for is uh, is to be understood because. Okay? B causes A. Alright? So very important. Uh, This is not to be taken literally. Jesus was not born first or created first. It is a title of honor that he has been given that because He created all things. The Father created all things through him. Nothing was created that was not created. Nothing was created that Jesus did not create. If Jesus was created, he had to have created himself. Did you follow that? Jesus created all things. All things. Not most things. All things. If he was a created being, he must have created himself. All right. Okay. Any questions on that passage? With regard to created all things? Yes. I'm, I'm, okay. If Jesus created all things and he himself was created, then he's one of those created things and he would have had to have created himself. Because he created all things. If Jesus created all things and he was created, he had to have created himself. So he, okay? So Jesus could not be a created being. Right. Well, so you're saying, I think, 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 I
I, I don't want to spend too much time on that. If you got it, okay. If not, it, that's all right. I think the, I think the, the quandary is the, is, the, is the fleshy aspect of Jesus as the creation. Where, where is that part created? Where is the, the human being part of Jesus created? Well, he took on that flesh in time, space, history. So he was not the being, the human being Jesus. Right. He did. He yes. Right. So at that moment, he took on flesh, and he will be in that condition for all eternity. Right. Um, I got to make a choice here because there is so much more to cover, and these passages truly are not easy, and we need to get an understanding of them because this is what people are going to feed back to you. These are the most common arguments. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to touch on these last three, okay? I'm going to touch on these last three. I'm not going to go into great detail about Jesus' attributes because I do want to spend time with Jesus became man. All right. The argument that for Jesus to have prayed to the Father means that you know, how can God pray to God? Prayer implies need. Why would Jesus need God? By definition, someone in need cannot be God because God does not experience need. And what this does is it, 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 it wants to strip Jesus of his humanity. We understand Jesus is human. The question is not that. The question is, is he God? And just because by God taking on human flesh, we may not completely understand because Jesus hungered, that was a need. Jesus thirsted, that was a need. Jesus, I would venture to say because he was human, there was a, a, a need for companionship. Jesus had that need. The Father does not experience those types of needs. Jesus did not experience those types of needs apart from taking on human flesh. And so... Let, let me just say this, um, that Jesus, in taking on human flesh, and when we get to this concept of kenosis that you see written down under B, Jesus became ban man, B, kenosis. I, I want to spend more time on that. Um, but I'm, So I'm just going to kind of share this with you briefly. But Jesus purposely subjected himself to human limitations, not denying his deity. He's still fully God, fully man. But now, with these limitations, he experiences need. Um, he purposefully subjects himself to the Father's every wish and relies upon his Father conveying to him his wishes. And he does this in prayer. Jesus purposefully places himself in our human condition, subjecting him to the very needs that we have. And we do have this need with communion with the Father. But before Jesus took on human flesh, that need wasn't there because it, you couldn't even describe it as a need. He was in full fellowship with the Father. He didn't experience the type of needs that we have as limited human beings. So Jesus, because he chose this route of taking on limited 
human flesh, he purposefully subjected himself to certain needs. He's going to need to pray now. He's going to need to hear from the Father or have the Father show him everything he does. Every miracle that Jesus did, he did because the Father showed him. Okay? And prayer is... Jesus didn't need to pray to the Father. Okay, ask the Jehovah's Witness... Before, because, and because they believed in Jesus' pre-existence. Did Jesus pray to the Father before he became a man? And they'll tell you no, he didn't need to. Okay, thank you, that's all I need to know. Because now that he takes on human flesh, he does need to pray. Okay? So, so Jesus, and I, I'm going to explain this more when we get to this concept of kenosis, and, and I think it's going to make sense to you. Um, Jesus... How can we refer to the Father being the God of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ, who is blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. He, Because Jesus is fully man, he looks to his Father as God, even as his God. Okay? That does not, that that is focusing on Jesus' humanity. And in his humanness, he looks to his Father as his God. All right? But in our, in our limited thinking, that's like, okay, the, the, the buzzer, the, 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 the light switch just burned out. Okay? Doesn't make sense. And I understand this. And so <clears throat> we, we have to be careful that we don't try to dis... Listen to this. We cannot disprove the deity of Jesus by focusing on his humanity. Okay? You cannot disprove the deity of Jesus by focusing on his humanity. Okay? It, it, Jesus was fully man, yet fully God. Okay? It, it, so... Uh, that 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 humanist deity that uh, is gonna I think it's gonna make a little bit more sense when we get to Philippians two, and then lastly the Father has authority over Jesus eleven two is that God is the head of G- of Christ and that I've already pretty much explained. Um, the attributes of Jesus there's more attributes than just these six that I've listed. My purpose is simply to say this that there was no other being angel or otherwise that forgives sins well they may have been sinless but they didn't take on human flesh so it doesn't matter they they receive none of them have the authority to forgive sins none of them receive worship or glory the angels that john started to bow down to they said don't worship me worship god um no angel or man pay can pay for our infinite offense of sin None of them receive prayer, but Jesus does. None of them are we ever asked to put our faith in. It is always in God. And God shares that privilege and first place devotion of the believer, nobody else. He he alone holds that affection in the believer's heart. And he shares that glory with no one. But he shared it with Jesus. And he didn't share it with Jesus just because he... He wanted to, but he shared it with Jesus because Jesus is, in essence, God. 
All right, and Jesus is also the judge of all. No angel or being created by God it can judge anyone. <clears throat> by, ver- by the very nature of who Jesus is, he is the judge. Okay. Um, here's what I'm going to do. I want to share seven reasons why Jesus had to have taken on human flesh. I'm going to go this route rather than going through the scripture verses first. This is not in your notes, so you're going to need to pay good attention and write them down. They're not long sentences. They're short sentences. But this is why, these seven reasons, this is why God had to take on human flesh and he could not have done it any other way to accomplish his divine plan of redemption. Okay? So why did Jesus have to become God? Number one, he had to, to be our righteous, to be our righteousness. Let me, let me word this a little better. He had to become man in order to be, in order to be our righteousness and be the sinless second Adam. Okay. He had to become the sinless second Adam in order for his righteousness, which was obedience to the Father in the flesh, obedience to the Father, that righteousness, that sinlessness, but that righteousness of Jesus is now imputed to every believer, okay? You cannot... The righteousness of an angel would not do. The righteousness of the greatest man who ever lived would not do. It had to be this, it had to be the righteousness of God who had become flesh. Someone who shared in our humanity. Okay? And it's kind of like apples and apples, oranges and oranges. What righteousness can I receive to be my own? It had to be a man's righteousness, not just simply God's righteousness. Though this righteousness is from God. It was a man in full submission to the Father, and so then it could be imputed to me. Now it's a perfect match. Okay? So God, in order to give us his righteousness, that we would be found clothed in his righteousness rather than our own, and be acceptable to the Father, that righteousness had to come from a man. And Romans 5 tells us that Jesus is the sinless second Adam. Okay? Number two, we needed Jesus' example of righteousness. Not his imputed righteousness, but his example of righteousness. I get it that God is sinless. I get it that he is perfectly holy and he does only what is right. But what is so much more helpful for us is someone who is of like passions and open to temptation to suffer the same temptations and yet remain sinless. Man, how did you do that? Okay? Isn't it so much better for you when a leader is so relatable 
If all you hear is a pastor preaching from his ivory pulpit and you don't interact with him, you don't talk with him, he, you can idolize him. You can, you can put him on this pedestal and it's like he's unrealistic. When he starts sharing stories about how he conquered sin, it's like, well, yeah, of course you can do that because you're the pastor. You see, and, and he becomes an unrelatable man to you. Now, I hope in my preaching, and as and you get to know me, you realize, yeah, Pastor Mike's definitely not perfect. Yeah, I've actually seen him blow it. But, and I'm going to tell you stories of what I have. And, and so in that way, my desire is to be relatable to you so that when I happen to get it right, you can say, well, if Pastor Mike gets it right, maybe I can too. Do you understand what I'm saying here? And so God... We can understand God being sinless, but this now Jesus, who is human, he was sinless, and he gives us a pattern and an example for us to follow. It's relatable. Okay? Number three. Um, He had to become a man to be a proper substitutionary sacrifice. Substitutionary means substituting. Okay? So if Jesus died on the cross for me, then he would have to be like me, okay? If he's going to be my substitute, then he would have to be human flesh, just like me. So in order for him to be a proper substitutionary sacrifice, he had to take on human flesh. Um. To be a proper mediator between God and man, he had to be both God and man. Do you see this? Okay? For Jesus to, uh, to represent me to the Father, he does so because he has taken on human flesh and he is a man. Now, by saying Jesus is a man, I'm not saying he's not God. This is one of the things in First Peter, excuse me, 1 Timothy 2 you know, people will make a big deal about. See, there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. See, he's only a man. That's not what the passage says. It just affirms his deity. It just affirms his humanity. Yes, you're right. He is a man. But let me show you many other verses that say he is God. Okay? So by simply calling Jesus a man, that is not denying his deity. Do you, do you, do you get that? Do you see that? All right. Jesus had to be a man in order to be my mediator. Number four, or number five. Now this is, this is something. It's, it's one, two, three, four, five. This is number five. Number one, imputed, has to do with being the sin, the second Adam. Number two, our way of example. He's our example of obedience. Number three, substitutionary sacrifice. Number four, mediator between God and man. Number five, he perfectly fulfilled the original dominion mandate to rule over the earth. He perfectly fulfilled the original dominion mandate that man was given. He is the epitome, the example par excellence of Obedience to God the Father. He fulfilled that. And he is continuing to fulfill that because by being obedient on earth, he ascended and sat down at the right hand of the Father. 
He could have just simply, as God and only God, sat down at the right hand of the Father, and he did. But he chose to, by by becoming man and be subject to temptation, but be fully obedient to the Father and sinless, and dying on the cross, he achieved our salvation. So Jesus had to become man to achieve that salvation. And then, if you will, he earned by all that he suffered and went through and accomplished. Now he sits down at the right hand of the Father, far above every rule and authority and every title that can be given, etc., etc. All right? So he, he, he chose the route of obedience rather than simply by saying, you know what, Father, I am God, I am your son, so I deserve to sit down here as men's savior. Well, he chose to earn that title, of that name Jesus, which means savior, that title Lord, which is really the place of God. So he earned that, if you will, through all that he had suffered. So he, he fully accomplished the dominion mandate of Genesis 1.28, and all things are being placed under his feet. That is the dominion mandate. Okay? Now, Jesus, he doesn't just, Jesus says everything, not just creation, but everything, not just everything created on the earth, which is the dominion mandate. He has everything, including angels and death itself, under his feet or will. All right? So he completely fulfilled the dominion mandate. He became, this is number six, he became the pattern of our redeemed bodies. Um, It it says in Philippians 3.21 that um, by this power that he places all things under his control, he will, um, wow, how does that go? Um, It's... Philippians 3.21, he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body, okay? And so Jesus is the archetype, if you will, that highest perfect type example. We, our bodies, will be transformed one day and they will mirror his glorified body, okay? Doesn't mean we're going to become God, But in Jesus' perfected humanness, that's what we will experience, okay? And then lastly, he had to be a man in order to be our sympathetic high priest. When you cry out to God in the midst of temptation that is so incredibly overwhelming, Jesus will literally be able to recall a similar temptation that he went through. He was in all ways tempted as we were. Wow. But he remained sinless. And so we have a high priest that sympathizes with our weaknesses. He understands them. He doesn't just say, man, when are you just ever going to get it together? Come on. This is so simple. You know, that's just not relatable. You know, a a pastor who knows what it's like to work hard can relate a little better to his congregation when it comes to 
the, the trials that they go through, juggling family and working long hours out in the sun or whatever he might do, overseeing people who are like stubborn sheep. Uh, he can get that. He understands what it's like working out in a secular world um, if he has had an opportunity. Many of the prophets, by the way, including King David, were shepherds or had were fishermen or had other occupations before God called them to minister to people. But Jesus can say, been there, but I haven't done that. Been there, and I know what it's like. And he is our sympathetic high priest. Okay, well, let, let, let me look at some of these things because I want us to understand not just the need for Jesus being man, but I want us to understand this humanity. Now, John 1, 1, we looked at, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory, okay? This is God stepping into the human arena of, of our human life and becoming like us. So John chapter 1 gives us this incredible uh, theological concept that every time you think about it, it will probably blow your mind. He is fully God and fully man. I don't get it. But you know what? I don't fully understand God, but I still believe him. I don't fully understand why God loves me and doesn't still consider me his enemy, but I'm going to believe that he loves me because the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me for the Bible tells me so. All right? I don't get it. I don't understand it. I, I, I can't understand this concept that Jesus' love is infinite, and yet I'm still called to grasp it. Grasp that which is beyond my understanding. Okay. Lifelong endeavor, church. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to believe his love or believe it doesn't exist. Yes, it does. It's just beyond my understanding. Because we don't understand something does not mean it does not exist. Let me say that one more time. Because I do not understand something does not mean it does not exist. Because I don't understand God does not mean God does not exist. Because I do not understand how Jesus can be fully God and fully man does not mean he is not. Okay? But this is the general argument that you're going to come up against out in the world. Oh, really? So if Jesus is man, then tell me this, tell me this, tell me this. And you would say, you know what? You're asking me to understand something that's beyond my understanding. But what I do know for sure is the Bible tells me he is God. The Bible tells me he is man. Let me walk you through all of these scripture passages that tell you he is fully God. Let me walk you through all of these scripture passages that tell me he is fully man. Now let's turn to Philippians 2. And I want you to go there. I want us to camp out here for just a little bit. And my time is almost up. Absolutely powerful, theological, I don't know if it's a hymn or a creed, um, but it finds its way into Paul's letter here to the Philippians. I almost called them Philippines. (laughs) 
But these Philippians, and it says this. It says, we need our attitudes, that of a humble servant, because that's the context here, verses 1 through 4. Humble servant. Not selfish ambition, humble servant. Your attitude should be the very same of that of Christ Jesus. What we're going to get here then is proof that Jesus has this example of a humble servant, right? This is what he says. Who being in very nature God. Just stop right there. He's talking about the, the, the Greek word here is morphos. Morphology, metamorphosis, form changing. But it's not just outward form. It's, it means form as in, this is what I'm made of type of form. Okay? We use, he took on the very nature or form of a servant being made in human likeness. He, he didn't have the outward appearance He took on the essence of a servant. This was now his call. Jesus came to this earth not to be served, but to serve. This is his calling. This is who he is. This is is his nature. It's in the fabric, in his DNA. He is a servant. This this is the one who's in in his DNA is God, and now in his DNA, it's a servant. Does that not blow your mind? So that's why the NIV translates morphos instead of form, like the King James. It says very nature, because that's, he's not just talking about the outward form. He's talking about the inner form or the essence, the DNA, who he really is. God, on the one hand, servant on the other, okay? So, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to be held onto, okay? But made himself nothing. And made, not, made himself nothing comes from this Greek word kenosis. This is what I want us to, to look at here. Many theologians have wondered, what does this mean? This concept of kenosis, of Jesus emptying himself. What did Jesus empty himself of? Some started off by saying he emptied himself of deity. Then why does he receive worship? Why would he have um, Thomas, or rather, why did he not rebuke Thomas for saying, my Lord and my God? No, 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 I gave that up a long time ago. I'm not God anymore. No, throughout his whole life, he is trying to demonstrate his perfect godness and perfect humanity. He didn't give up his deity. Then what did he give up? What did he empty himself of? I'm going to word it this way. Jesus gave up or surrendered his glory. And, And it's so easy to say but it's so difficult to really understand because what does that really mean? And we take this from John 17 and Jesus says in John 17, uh, yeah, I didn't write the passage down. I think it's like verse six. He says, um, give me the glory 
that I once had with you at the beginning. Okay, wow, wait a second. So Jesus is now asking for that glory to be restored. That means he had to have given it up at some point. And this would be the most understandable concept here. What is Jesus emptying himself? He's emptying himself of that glory. Let me kind of unwrap that a little bit. And, and we, when Jesus is saying he's giving up his glory that he had at the beginning, what does he mean by that? Jesus, by being the very, in very nature God, he could have relied on him being the son of God to heal. By relying, by relying on that nature of deity, he could, have ris- he could have raised the dead. He could have uh, done all of these miracles by virtue of who he was. But what does Jesus tell us the reason for his miracles to be? In Luke 4, he quotes from Isaiah 61, and he says, The, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, to anoint me, he has anointed me to preach good news, heal the brokenhearted, um, open eyes, or restore the sight of the blind, and set captives free. He's talking about physical healing, spiritual healing. Why didn't he just say, because I am God, I'm doing all of these things? He's saying that in essence, when he emptied himself of his glory, he made a choice. And from that moment on, he is going to be completely dependent upon the Father. Whereas before, he wouldn't need to be. He didn't need to pray. He would just, he would commune with the Father, however he communed, whatever language, I don't know. His, his relationship with the Father was now different when he took on human flesh. He didn't appeal to his godness to heal. He relied now on the Holy Spirit's anointing to heal. He chose this. Jesus could have relied on his deity to be sinless. But he made choices every day to be sinless. Okay? He made those choices. He subjected himself to complete reliance upon the Father. Jesus, the very first temptation in Luke 4, the devil comes to him and says, if you are the Son of God, In other words, by virtue of you being the Son of God, make these stones bread. He'd just been fasting 40 days. What a temptation. But he denied that. Because when he took on human flesh, he chose to be completely reliant upon the Father for everything, including the food he ate. He could have done it by being... Virtue of who he was as the son of God. But he surrendered that when he became flesh. He surrendered that to the father. So that he did not rely on being God to accomplish these things. 
He relied on the very virtue of his reliance upon God. Not by who he was as the son of God. But he had now subjected himself to the father. His relationship with the father, now that he took on human flesh, was different. And now he had need of the father to provide. Okay? So this is kind of what... We're, we're talking about when Jesus emptied himself of his glory. He subjected himself to complete reliance upon the Father. He didn't do any miracles apart from specific word from the Father and anointing by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not saying that he's not God. It's not, that's, in essence, he is God. But he made a choice when he, was, when he took on human flesh. How... Does that not say something to you as a, as a human, a man or a woman? Jesus denied himself of all of these privileges of, as the Son of God. And he took on human flesh and he found himself completely reliant upon the Father. That's you and me. We find ourselves completely reliant upon him for the bread that we eat, the water that we drink, for, for in the midst of temptation, in, in, when we're facing incredible obstacles. All right? Jesus did not encounter a personal problem or personal obstacle and removed it by his own virtue. He never did that. Think through Jesus' ministry. He could have turned the bread, excuse the rocks into bread, but he chose not to. No, God is the one who provides. He could have submitted to Satan's desires and Satan's plan you just bow before me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world no God has another plan and I've subjected myself to that plan every problem that Jesus encountered every problem completely relied on the father he didn't do it because he was the son of God he could have called down a legion of angels but he was submitted to a different plan. And that was the will of the Father. That's why the wrestling in the Garden of Gethsemane was so intense. There's other things, of course, the fact that someone sinless and, in essence, God is going to take on sin. Jesus knew no sin and he became sin for us. But he was struggling in his humanness with the will of the Father at that point. But that didn't mean that he sinned. Okay, emotionally, there was a struggle. He was distraught. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it says um, he he was so he was sorrowful, even to the point of death. You know, sometimes I read through the Book of Psalms, and it's easy for me to to think, David, just get the right attitude. Come on. But David is just, he's so honest with his emotions. And, and I think in our day, we equate godliness with lack of emotion sometimes. Or 
like somehow it's wrong to be distraught or sorrowful, to agonize in temptation, to agonize with the Father's will. It doesn't mean Jesus was saying, I don't want to do your will. He said, Father, if there's another way. So he was not arguing against the Father's will. He knew he had to submit to it, but it was in his flesh, emotionally, hard. So hard, he's described it being at the point of death. You see, this is the God who took on human flesh and emptied himself of all of his glory and the implications of what that is. And he became just like you and me. Minus the sin. Minus the flesh. And he lived a perfect life in perfect obedience to the Father, fully reliant upon him, fully reliant upon the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And he, he says to us, not just greater things shall you see, John 10, but greater things shall you do. Wow. As his church, greater things shall we do. As his church. So I, I don't know about you, when I think of Jesus taking on human flesh, I, it, it, it boggles my mind. Number one, I don't understand it. But number two, the amazement of God loving me so much that he would subject himself to that level. That he would willingly go through trials and temptations. How many of us, man, we pray our temptations and trials away? God, just get those, get those away. I don't want them at all in my life. You know, now the Bible says, lead me not into temptation. It doesn't say, God, let me experience no temptation whatsoever. That, that couldn't have been Jesus' prayer. If it was, the Father didn't answer it because Jesus was tempted. So Jesus was tempted just like me. We serve a relatable Savior who is so dependent upon the Father and he led us to walk in that type of reliance upon the Father as well. That is Jesus' humanity. Okay, let's pray. Jesus, first of all, I want to thank you that you didn't pray your trials away. You didn't pray your temptations away. You prayed for strength. You prayed that, Father, you would work everything out. Father, sometimes I, I think we, we want to run from problems all the time. And problems are no fun at all. But we see a Jesus who went through these problems and struggles and heartaches. He wept. He experienced the pain, if you will, of death. This is the Jesus I serve. This is the Jesus I want to be like. I want to have that strength. I want to rely so totally upon you that you do miracles, God. I don't want to just wish them all away. I want to see you act mightily on our behalf. And, and thank you, Father. There are times in which you do remove those obstacles. 
and you quiet the storm. And miss a tremendous need, you provide financially. The bread is multiplied many times over. Jesus, thank you that you became like me and you showed me the way. Help each of us, God, to find that way, to be fully trusting in you. And I'm asking God, as we do that, show yourself mighty, God, mighty on our behalf, in provision, in giving us a way out of temptation. And may we be so bold as to take that every time, God. Empower us by your Spirit. Anoint us by your Spirit, God. Father, we want to see God arise and the enemy be scattered. We want to see ourselves as more than conquerors, not people who never fight battles. Those battles are going to come. We just want to be victorious, God. Jesus was. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.